In the 1650s, the Quakers are the scariest thing around. Everything that had gotten so easily quashed in the previous decade uh, can't be contained. It's just a lot harder to round up and jail this expanding vanguard of traveling men and women prophets uh, rampaging around the countryside than it was to stamp out a few communes around the countryside. So it's a much harder movement to stop. On today's episode, we've got ranchers, Muggletonians, and Quakers. Oh my. The, 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 Quaker podcast. Story, spirit, sound. I'm Georgia Sparling. And I'm John Watts. And today we're going back to the early days of Quakerism by mostly not talking about Quakers at all. Right. Yes. I. Uh, so I put you up to this. It's in anticipation of our big James Naylor episode next week. That's right. So the the Naylor story is infamous in Quaker history because his reenactment in Bristol was you know, perhaps outlandish, and he was persecuted mercilessly. There's so much to explore there, and I hope that you'll tune in next week to hear the whole story. But we we thought we'd start this week with. The context. What were the circumstances that led to Naylor's infamous ride into Bristol? Was he a lone fanatic? Was he in good company for his day? We thought we'd look into it. So today we're talking exclusively about religious radicals of the 17th century. Yeah, religious radicals of 17th century England. It, it was a pretty wild period. Yeah, and more than one historian I've spoken with has likened it to the 1960s in America. So, you know, we're talking long hair, LSD, and like sex, drugs, and rock and roll? More like sex, jail, and sparkles of glory. <laughs> sparkles of um, Okay, what? That's the name of a religious track that was written back then, and we will get into that in a few minutes. Oh, okay. So, Georgia, you want to set the scene for us? What was going on generally in 17th century England? It was a pretty apocalyptic period. At least that's how it felt to the people that were living through this time. Right. There was there was a civil war. The monarchy was effectively ended, like they executed the king. So new religious ideas were rampant and sects were forming left and right. It was chaos and turmoil. And opportunity. For those with a radical vision for the future of society, it was like suddenly... What do we have to lose? So today we're going to talk about those groups and get a sense of the milieu in which Quakerism formed. Okay, bring on the Muggletonians. We'll get to them. Be patient. Oh, sorry. Today's episode is a survey of the religious and political radicals that sprung up in 17th century England. These are groups that would have been known to the likes of early Quaker leaders like George Fox and James Naylor. And let me tell you, these groups have some amazing monikers, as our friend, Quaker historian Max Carter, explains. The levelers, the diggers, you know, the seekers, seekers one, seekers two, the ranters, Muggletonians, eventually the Quakers. We're going to talk about each of these groups and more. But first, let's discuss why religious radicals were springing up all over the place in the 1600s. Partly, it's because the previous religious reforms didn't go far enough for some people. And then there's the political intrigue. King Charles I and Parliament were at odds, and it had massive repercussions for the country. 
very quickly from between 1640 and 42, there was this breakdown between Charles and Parliament, and he began to raise an, his own army to uh, punish Parliament. Uh, so Parliament scrambled to raise their own army. That's Doug Gwynn. Doug is a retired Quaker minister. He's been a scholar-in-residence at Pendle Hill, and he's written a number of books, including Seekers Found, Atonement in Early Quaker Experience. He's going to walk us through this history along with Andrew Bradstock. An emeritus professor of the University of Winchester in the UK. And I've been, I suppose, studying, researching, teaching, writing about the so-called radicals of the 17th century, probably for the last 40-odd years. My main book on them, I suppose, was in 2011, which was Radical Religion in Cromwell's England. Okay, so with the fracture between the king and parliament, a civil war erupts in 1642. Which was really broken down into three separate wars, which was hugely traumatic. And in terms of the number of people who died in those wars as a percentage of the population, it's second only to the First World War as far as the number of deaths in the UK. I mean, it really was um, bloody. And it was very divisive as well because it split families. So some, some in one family would support the king and others would support parliament. You had the breakdown of, a sort of breakdown of law and order. The main institutions in society were dismantled. And with the Civil War quickly followed uh, a suspension of, of uh, censorship of the press and suspension of enforced parish church att attendance. So that allowed all sorts of religious and political ideas to begin to circulate. King Charles was on the side of the aristocracy, naturally, but the country was also becoming more capitalistic. Meanwhile, the Puritans wanted leadership of the church to be elected by parliament instead of bishops appointed by the king. Control of the church would, would shift to, to parliament rather than the, than the king. And Charles didn't like that idea. And a number of people were becoming increasingly disgruntled with the religious and political systems, which were all knotted up together. I mean, by law, everyone had to both attend church and tithe a percentage of their income. What you found in that situation was people who were dissatisfied with, with the situation of church and state before the war, yet men and women by the thousands beginning to f drop out from all these different solutions to the, to the church and state. And these, none of these names were, were self-chosen. They were all uh, epithets thrown, thrown around, but they, they begin to be called seekers. The Seekers. This is the first radical group we'll talk about, and it turns out they weren't much of a group at all. I think Rufus Jones called them a generalized tendency. I think the Seekers probably were the most disparate of all. I mean, they seemed to be people who thought that, um, you know, there was no proper church anymore. There was no church that was faithful to the teachings of the scriptures and the teachings of Christ. These were church dropouts who Doug says were waiting for the big reveal of the true church. They really wanted to belong to a church that they could believe was the solution to all this fragmentation of the English Reformation as well as Reformations on the continent. So some of them were wandering around in desolation uh, individually, like the young George Fox during these years. Others were meeting in, in small worship groups, but they were all 
waiting for something better to, to appear. A preacher by the name of John Saltmarsh wrote a track called Sparkles of Glory. Uh, they had great titles in those days. Agreed. And in that tract, he outlines two kinds of seekers. He describes the first seeker type as very forlorn, looking for a way back to the purity of the New Testament church. But Saltmar says there's a second seeker type. He doesn't even call them seekers. He doesn't give them any name. But he says, These, this, this group, they, they reasoned that why would God bring the church back to a faith that had gone into apostasy so soon after the New Testament times. So instead, God must be leading us on to uh, a fuller revelation. And they speculate that the church will not be a visible, organized church like the, the first seekers expected, but the, the Spirit is being poured out on all flesh they also believe that the sacraments in this new dispensation are inward, not in outward forms. Quakerism hasn't formed yet, but there are some obvious parallels to this movement that's still on the horizon. We'll get to that later. For now, we're moving on to the levelers. The levelers. Who aren't really a religious group. They're, they're uh, a small group of political pamphleteers uh, with rather Republican ideas of forming the political order in England. They were good at, at, at raising agitation in the streets of, of London and in the ranks of the army. In the ranks of the army, they tended to be called agitators. Again, this was a name that was given to them. It was kind of derogatory because they were, gasp, trying to make more equal laws, laws that didn't just favor the wealthy. They wanted all men to have the right to vote and for parliament members to have salaries so that even the poorer members of society could afford to participate. So it was that kind of thing, which really was very, very far-sighted. And in fact, so we're talking 1640, 1650. Those kind of reforms didn't come in until the middle of the 19th century. So, you know, um, two, 200 years later, yeah. These are, are uh, good political activists. They're good at, at producing political pamphlets. Uh, they also innovate uh, mass demonstrations. The Levelers also advocated for religious toleration, the end of tithes, and the end of military conscription. It was pretty big stuff for that time. Sort of the moment of truth for the Leveler agenda came in the fall of 1647 as the war was just coming to a close. There was a big debate. Agitators and levelers and generals and such were all invited. This is where the levelers begin to lose out, and the generals sort of begin to quash the leveler agenda. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the defeated King Charles escapes, reassembles his army, and starts yet another civil war. This one was very short-lived. Then he's recaptured, tried for treason, and relieved of his head, if you catch my drift which is just, you know, a, a, a trip to the moon for everybody. You know, monarchy goes back as far as anybody knows, you know. And, and so here we are without a king. The whole political situation has moved so far beyond what anybody expected that it will henceforth be impossible to find a political consensus around this unprecedented and unexpected situation. And as for the levelers... There's a, a leveler 
uh, or agitator attempted insurrection of about a thousand members of the army in May of 1649, that's easily put down. I think it was three leaders of that insurrection are hanged by the generals and that sort of begins the end of any serious leveler conversation. Now we're on to the interestingly named Diggers, often viewed as the first communists and lauded by the likes of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. The Diggers This group forms after Charles has lost his head and Parliament has been purged of its Presbyterian majority. You've got a smaller uh, parliament that is ready to do somewhat more daring things, and they declare an English commonwealth. Enter Gerard Winstanley. A failed textile merchant in London. He takes this declaration of an English commonwealth to be licensed to uh, start forming communes on on common land uh, for poor people to uh, farm and garden and feed themselves. And about a dozen digger communes in southern and central England start up. So the term diggers is a reference to the fact that they literally picked up their spades, went to a bit of um, common land and started digging it and planting um, vegetables and stuff, building huts and and generally setting up a community. They wanted an end to um, the kind of enclosure system where the rich and the powerful would appropriate, you know, thousands of acres of land for themselves and fence it all off and no one could have access to it. And it was for them a kind of justice issue that people were hungry and without work and, you know, hadn't got easy access to food. And yet there were others who had vast tracts of land that could be used but wasn't being used. Uh, And they formed literally about three months after the execution of Charles. They said, right, now is the opportunity to end the system of land ownership over which the king ruled. Um, break it down and let the common people have the land and and there was a strong theological principle behind that Um, God had created the land for everybody to share Although they were called diggers Winstanley referred to the group as the true levelers Amateur historian Johnny Dean Warren has a Facebook called Delicious Digger Memes for 17th Century English Dissident Teens. That's a mouthful. And he describes Winstanley like this. He basically reinterprets Genesis and other things in the Bible to talk about how the earth um, was created by God in the beginning um, as a what he calls a common treasury for the well-being of all um, and humans he saw as were the stewards of this, but but it was like this kind of system where, uh, created by God and early humans, where we were all kind of uh, in like a harmony with nature, and, and we shared things with one another in a way that's you know, very idealistic. It didn't work. This group is scaring the bejabbers out of the ruling classes. Some 200 years later, Karl Marx would laud Winstanley for his ideas. And later, Vladimir Lenin would inscribe Winstanley's name on a monument in a Moscow garden, listed number eight among 19 other revolutionaries. But that wasn't really Winstanley's bag, says Andrew. There's a small-c communism, which 
is sort of living together, sharing stuff, not not putting a big emphasis on private ownership and private property, but saying, well, let's have all things in common, which, you know, arguably you find in the Book of Acts where the Jerusalem church sold their possessions and, and, and shared stuff, you know. It's that sort of small C communism, I think, that's more where Winstanley was. The true leveler movement was short-lived. That lasted about a year. Winstanley and his group in Surrey were driven off on Easter week of 1650. <laughs> Wonderful religious observance there. Winstanley retires back to London. He writes some very exciting political tracts for, you know, kind of rethinking the future of England, but those will have no, no future in, in the emerging government. He will eventually become a kind of a low-profile Quaker. So the true levelers have themselves been leveled. And today, on the land when Stanley occupied is, ironically enough, a gated community. Most houses up there would be 20, 30 million pounds. And where I think they might have been is now a very exclusive golf course. (laughs) Alas, as Joni Mitchell sang, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Okay, now it's time for a short break. And when we return, we're on to the ranters. And we'll look at how all of these groups connect to the Quakers. Hey, it's John here. Just wanted to hop on and share a little bit about the thinking behind how we're structuring this show. We've divided the episodes up into four different types. Maybe you've noticed by now. We've got modern stories, thematic episodes, vocal ministry episodes, and then shows like this one, which are about history. Sometimes as friends, I know we can be a little bit wary of talking too much about our history, and I get it. You know, the the spirit is living and present in the here and now. And we strive to acknowledge the spiritual giftedness of all friends. And so if we spend too much time talking about the 1600s, we run the risk of feeling like we might be venerating a handful of long-dead heroes or that we're a religion of the past. But I just wanted to share a quick story with you. When I was in my 20s, it was during the Iraq War and just after 9-11, and I started questioning my involvement with Quakerism. I loved the community and the people, but with everything in the world that needs healing, and with everything that's actively unraveling, I started feeling like, what's the point of devoting ourselves to just sitting in silence every week? You know, shouldn't we be doing something more bold? And that's when I learned about the early Quakers from one of my professors at Guilford College. The audacity of these stories and the spiritual courage of these religious radicals in 17th century England captured my imagination. I learned that this path isn't just about sitting in silence and being kind to one another, but it's about this inward revolution, the Lamb's War, I started to wonder if maybe these sometimes outlandish stories of 17th century religious radicals might have something to offer us today. As we see the world unraveling around us now in different but no less scary ways, and with so much confrontation and healing needed, 
I can't help but think that these stories are more relevant than ever. If we can wrestle with these ideas together and inspire each other into knowing that a different way is possible and that this time of great change is also a time of great opportunity, maybe it's worth time traveling to the 1600s every so often. And you know, history isn't for everybody. That's why it's only one out of every four episodes. So whether this has been your favorite one so far or your least favorite, I hope that you'll consider supporting us in our work of exploring these stories of spiritual courage. It takes a lot of work and resources to tell these stories well, and we need your support to keep it going. Please visit thequaker.org to find out how you can help. Welcome back. We're on to our next group of nonconformists. The Ranters. With a name like that, this should be fun. The quashing of the of the agitator insurrection or mutiny, I guess it should be called, uh, in the army in May, is followed that summer by uh, some ranters kind of uh, rampaging in the streets of London, charging at the carriages of the wealthy, uh, confronting the, the, the clergy, and instigating a kind of inverted Puritan morality, uh, saying, you know, sin and righteousness are all the same, that the only heaven and hell are on earth. You can imagine how well that went over. A lot of them were former clergy. You know, so it's, it's, it's not like they were just irreligious. The, these were hyper-religious individuals that had reached this point of just kind of despair, but a kind of ecstatic despair. Uh, it's, it's such an interesting phenomenon, the ranters. So they're kind of monists, mystics of a, of a certain kind that uh, are just also thumbing their nose at the Puritan establishment as it's trying to take hold of, of the situation after the war is over. The first identifiable figure is a, is a uh, guy named Abiezer Kopp, who, who uh, publishes two tracts that summer called A Fiery Flying Roll and A Second Fiery Flying Roll. <laughs> These are truly great titles, and some of the ranters really had a way with words. Take this letter from Joseph Salmon. Uh, he's my favorite ranter. So this is to his friend, <laughs> Thomas Webb. Eternal plagues consume you all, rot, stink, and damn your bodies and souls into devouring fire, whence none but those that walk uprightly can enter. Sirs, I wish you damnably well, because I dearly love you, and Lord grant that we may know the worth of hell, that we forever scorn heaven." For my own part, I am ascended far above all heavens, yet I fill all things and laugh in my sleeve to think what's coming. <laughs> to the Puritan 17th century mind, that's just a some kind of a nonstop curse, cursing and blasphemy. But you can you can hear that he's just he's just exploding all the categories, and and uh, this is what lands him and, and a lot of other people that take up this kind of behavior in jail. What was that Cole Porter song, Anything Goes? That would surely be at the top of the Ranter's Spotify playlist. Take this line from Cop. He said, I can, if it be my will, 
kiss and hug ladies and love my neighbor's wife as myself without sin. Once more, this is a loose group of people, maybe in more ways than one. They weren't having weekly meetings, and they're more sensational than substantial. It doesn't last long. Okay, now we're going to take a minute to talk about another short-lived group. The Fifth Monarchist These ones get their name from the Old Testament book of Daniel. In the book, Daniel has this vision of four beasts who equal four empires that came into power over the Jews. Then he has a vision of a fifth empire that will arise. One such as a son of man who will come and and rule with righteousness. And the fifth monarchists believe that that the fifth monarchy in in the book of Daniel will be fulfilled as as the the saints the the true tr- christians the more radical wing of of puritanism basically uh come into power and the army gave them sort of a chance but they couldn't do seem to do much else they couldn't seem to agree on anything and so that fell apart by the end of of 1653 and that really was the end of the fifth monarchist chance at at power in England, they henceforth became a more violent insurrectionary group. They attempted completely futile violent insurrections, and all of them completely ridiculous. There are truly an astounding number of groups rising up at this time, some of them very small, all of them disruptive in their own way. And now we come to the Muggletonians, which are perhaps the best name of the religious and political radicals that we're talking about today. I mean, who knew there were Muggles before Harry Potter? The Muggletonians. It's hard to know what to say about the Muggletonians, except that they were probably the best deserving of, of the term cult uh, of any of these groups, because they really formed very tightly around Two men, Ludwig Muggleton and John Reeves. This was a very small group centered on these two guys who thought they were the prophets written about in the book of Revelation. They believed that people had, everybody had a measure of good and evil in them. But some people have much more good than evil and some people have much more evil than good. And so they went round blessing those who had more good than evil and cursing the others. And um, and they believed that that had some effect. And there were examples of people they, they would curse who would then get drowned the next day. So, so it is said. But, uh, and, and the main thing about whether you were good or evil was whether you actually recognised Muggleton and Reeve as the, as the two last witnesses. The group never gained much traction. But here's the bizarre thing. There was known to be Muggletonians right through the um, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and right down to 1979. (laughs) There was somebody who claimed to be the last Muggletonian. He lived in a farmhouse in in Kent in southeast England. And after he died, uh, that that was the end of it. But isn't that bizarre? So in this morass of disgruntled, unsettled, and probably pretty freaked out Brits, all of these factions rise up. And that includes the Quakers. The Quakers. The Quakers 
pulled together the ideas and experiments of the Civil War period of the previous decade and uh, when they when they come into their own in the 1650s. In some ways, I think the Quaker movement could begin only after people had given up hope that Parliament or the army were going to save them. You know, and it was going to really have to happen from from the grassroots. And uh, you know, there's other important leaders in the movement, but Fox seems to be the one who had come up with this form of spiritual counsel that that lit a, a new fire under radicals that were disillusioned and, and lost and in despair by 1650. We have a whole episode on George Fox and the beginnings of Quakerism that you should definitely check out. We'll make sure and include a link in our show notes. Anywho, Fox would have known about all of these groups. We even know from his journal that he visited Joseph Salmon, the ranter, in jail, and maybe cop, too. He apparently thought they were pretty unhinged. But then he gets mistaken for a ranter himself and thrown into prison for a year. One of the things that the early Quaker movement have to deal with is the accusation that they are ranters. That's Stuart Masters, an author and teacher at Woodbrook, a Quaker study centre in the UK. The model of the ranter is someone who is a pantheist. They say, God is everything, God is in me, and if God is in me, anything I do is of God, and therefore I can do anything. Now, Quakers, of course, um, share uh, enough commonality with that sort of vision in the early days that they are uh, uh, open to that kind of accusation. They are claiming that Christ is within them. They are claiming that... Uh, what they do and what they say is Christ doing it through them but they are very clear that that is uh, an experience of God's law being written on your heart you will act in righteousness and with propriety if Christ is living through you but um, because of this complicated political situation Quakers are often open to the accusation that they are ranters particularly given how assertive they are, how charismatic they are, and how threatening they appear to be to those in power. When Fox gets out of jail, he walks north, away from London, preaches to a bunch of people, and the movement really gets going. These folks were of that first seeker type that Doug talked about earlier. That were trying to find uh, the way back to the to the New Testament church and looking for new apostles. And Fox... He, you know, he did some faith healings and he did some kind of uncanny things that they probably meant that they decided he might be this apostle. And he certainly had a form of spiritual counsel that, that got them energized in ways that they'd never known before. They were gonna, it was going to have to start from them. And so this thing grows very rapidly as, as Fox and then Naylor are moving across from Yorkshire across into Westmoreland and Lancashire, gathering thousands of, of people in, into this fledgling movement that is scaring the, the clergy up there to death. They're writing to Parliament saying, look, you've got to do something. Help us out here. Uh, this, this is really out of control. And so it's not until, until the movement arrives in Bristol and, and, uh, and uh, London in 1654 that it begins to get uh, the attention of, of the army and, and, and parliament. And you begin to find some, some serious persecution begin to take place. By the time the Quakers really get going, some of the other radical religious groups that we've talked about have already disappeared. We do know that some of those folks joined the Quakers, but it's not clear how many. 
so things are, are very fluid and, and mercurial, uh, especially in the first decade. The second type of seekers were also attracted to the Quakers. Progressive seekers, you might say, seemed to predominate more in the South, in the urban centers, and in the army. And so they have been discouraged and waiting for something better to happen, too. And, and so they're waiting for Quakers to arrive because they're hearing wild reports of what's going on up north. So, you know, things, things catch fire very quickly in London and Bristol over the summer of 1654. Quaker apostle Edward Burrow meets the former digger leader Gerard Winstanley. And Winstanley tells Burrow that, that you know, this is, this is the way forward. We don't know how many seekers and diggers and levelers became Quakers, but we know that there was definitely overlap. Unlike those other groups, though, the Quakers had staying power. It's just a lot harder to round up and jail this expanding vanguard of traveling men and women prophets uh, rampaging around the countryside than it was to stamp out a few communes around the countryside. So it's a much harder movement to stop. And they uh, publish at a, at a rate that, unlike anything anybody had, had done before. And all kinds of people were getting into print. Uh, men and women Quakers were, were getting tracts published. It's, it's a rapidly moving situation. The kind of spiritual counsel that Fox and others begin to uh, help people with gets them centered in a radical present that, that uh, is incredibly energizing. The energy is partly out of all the frustration that they've experienced over the previous decade and all the, all the faded hopes that suddenly catch fire again with a, a new conviction and a new sense of authority, you know, to go out and speak the word of the Lord in the, in the marketplace and in the streets and to interrupt parish churches all over the country uh, in their worship and denounce the clergy <laughs> and, uh, you know, stuff that uh, was done in small ways uh, previously, but nothing like, like this. So uh, in the 1650s, the Quakers are the scariest thing around. And everything that had gotten so easily quashed in the previous decade can't be contained. Of course, Quakers had anything but an easy time of it. They were persecuted for three decades, and hundreds of them died in prison. But again, they were too rapidly growing, too mercurial, too rapidly moving, too, too large a, uh, a vanguard of, of male and female prophets. Their stubbornness uh, as a prophetic sign uh, that, that Christ is still teaching his people himself and uh, uh, not ready to fit back in the box that the, that the Anglican Church has prepared for him is... Uh, still at large, and they're not going to go away. Uh, other groups are meeting quietly underground at, at uh, secret times and places. Quakers still put it out there. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Doug Gwynn, Andrew Bradstock, Max Carter, Stuart Masters, and Johnny Dean Warren for their time and expertise. Learn more about their work on our episode page. That's at QuakerPodcast.com, where you'll also find a transcript of this episode, discussion questions, and a place to leave a comment. 
speaking of comments, we've had quite a few recently over at QuakerPodcast.com, including this one on our last episode featuring Pastor Mark Kondo. Mark preached on Matthew 25, and our commenter, Kurt, shared his experience with that episode. He said that he had this experience where he was really short with a panhandler who he encountered at a restaurant. Kurt writes that Mark's comment, did you happen to see me down there, really made him think. Kurt writes, I have lived my life in the church and have had personal commitment since my teenage years to stay in the faith. I've heard this reading at least 40 times over the years in sermons and Sunday readings, but it hit me this morning when I heard Mark's rephrasing of it. It is amazing how humbling a simple comment can be to realize how short of God's expectations we are. I appreciate Mark's reminder that Jesus is in the person disrupting my conversation with friends and I need to react accordingly. Thanks for the reminder. By the grace of God, I'll hopefully do better next time. Peace. Thank you so much for sharing that experience, Kurt. It's amazing, really, how one phrase can have an impact on our thinking and kind of change something that we've heard a million times. So have you been impacted by a recent episode? Is there something that stuck out in your mind after listening? If so, please tell us about it by leaving a comment on our website or by giving us a call at 215-278-9411. That's 215-278-9411. We just might share it on the next episode. And if you didn't catch that number, head over to QuakerPodcast.com. The Quaker Podcast is part of The Quaker Project, a Quaker media organization with a focus on lifting up voices of spiritual courage and giving Quakers a platform in 21st century media. If you want to give to our work, we would so appreciate it. Please consider becoming a monthly supporter. You can learn more about how to join our giving team at TheQuaker.org. That's T-H-E-E Quaker.org. Every contribution expands our capacity to tell Quaker stories in a fresh way. This episode was produced and edited by me, Georgia Sparling, and John Watts. John also composed the music for this episode. Kareem Lambie was our voice actor. We'll be back next week with an episode that's all about James Naylor. You won't want to miss it.